0: Well, as we come uh, to the famous, or should I say infamous, account of the Tower of Babel, in many ways we've reached the climax of everything we've been learning in Genesis chapters 4 to 11, or in particular 9 to 11 so far. Paradise, you'll remember, was freely handed to Adam and Eve, our first representatives in the garden temple. Yet, through their own willful disobedience, they allowed the generosity of their creator to slip through their fingers. And the story of Genesis from that moment onwards becomes one of hopelessness for all mankind, for all humankind. Things spiral out of control in a downward direction, sort of outside of some kind of divine intervention, there really is no hope for this world. Uh, some of us may struggle with this rather bleak outlook, but I, I think Genesis chapters 4 to 11 are here to drive this point home to us. Uh, Noah, as we come to chapter 9, is set up as a kind of second Adam who looks like he might succeed where the first Adam failed. But alas, by the end of chapter 9, all our hopes in this new man, Noah, have been dashed. More positively, by the time we get to the end of chapter 10, Noah's sons have achieved what their father was tasked with doing in chapter 9. Uh, Verse 1 and verse 7 of chapter 9 say they must fill the earth, be fruitful and fill the earth, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. And we are hopeful We are hopeful since by the end of chapter 10, praise God. His kindness means that this has indeed been achieved. Seventy nations known to Moses at the time are listed in chapter 10 for completeness. Praise God. One huge brotherhood of man, all tracing their roots back to Noah's three sons, but the question is this, what will become of these nations of this new world, washed clean of human corruption by the flood? Perhaps collectively, they will succeed where the one righteous man of his generation, Noah, failed. Sadly, the answer that comes to us in verses 1 to 4 of Genesis chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is here to help you and I understand why peace, harmony, and any sort of collective human effort east of Eden, or away from relationship with God, verse 2, will at best always be fragile and temporary. There's two things I believe God is saying to us in his word here this afternoon. And the first is this. Our problem is one of collective human pride. Our problem as a race is one of collective human pride. I'm getting that from verses 1 to 4. Let me read them to you again. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastwards, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. China, Middle East, think Iraq, Iran, that kind of area. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks, brick instead of stone, and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Verse 4 pinpoints the arrogant desire, the pride, the collective hubris of the human project. But what could possibly be wrong in building magnificent buildings like the shard that we have here in London? What could be wrong with that? What could be wrong with this tower that's being built here in Genesis chapter Well, in Genesis chapter 1, you may remember from way back, the whole universe, the heavens, as it were, is God's temple, the place where he dwells. So in chapter 3 of Genesis, in wanting to become their own lawmakers, in wanting the power to decide what was good and what was evil, Adam and Eve were reaching for divine status they were reaching to the heavens in order to dethrone the true God of heaven in order to take his place. And this is exactly what's in view here in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. The pride of human beings is such that they think they can reach to the heavens to usurp God and take his place. Of course, this is at the heart of what it means to be a sinner. The word sin is described as a little word with a much bigger word in the middle. I. So what we have here is humanity banding together in one grand corporate enterprise but with no recognition of or respect for their creator. Now please don't misunderstand me. What is in view here what is being condemned here is not human achievement nor human progress. Human progress and achievements are not wrong per se. Indeed, as a cl- culture, we've been greatly blessed by them, haven't we? Here in the West in 2021. I, I still remember the first time Rebecca and I Skyped. Uh, we Skyped her dad when we were living in South Africa and he was living here in the UK. Even though he was almost 6,000 miles away, we could see him, hear him, and speak with him in real time, apart from, back then, one or two seconds of delay, which I think Skype has improved by now. I remember being so amazed, it was like something out of a sci-fi movie. Now, in 2021, we take for granted the blessing of how technology has been able to connect us to one another wonderfully. It's amazing. And some of us, for obvious reasons, are a little bit fed up with things like Teams and Google, Meet and Zoom and FaceTime, etc. Yet there has been significant achievement and progress in a whole host of areas globally and collectively. From the invention of the printing press in the 15th century to the internet in the 20th century but this is not what is in view here in genesis chapter 11. so first notice humanity defies god who says scatter and fill my earth chapter 9 verse 1 chapter 9 verse 7 but they say no Let's band together, verse 4 of chapter 11. Then they said, come let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Can you see what began individually with Adam and Eve in the old world of Genesis chapters 1 and 2? Has now firmly and collectively taken root in the new world of Genesis 9 to 11. And as humanity moves forward to repopulate the world of Genesis chapter 9 and onwards, and as humanity moves forward. The problem here in Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 to 4, is that we have humanity attempting to forge its own identity, its own collective purpose, and to leave a legacy, but apart from its creator God. And also in disobedience to his word and stated goal for them as a race. Scatter, fill the earth. No, we're going to stick together. It is supreme arrogance to think these things can be achieved without reference to God and in direct defiance of him. A second notice, again verse 4, that they want to make a name for themselves in the process. Across the page in Genesis chapter 12 of my Bible, God promises to make Abraham's name great. Genesis 12 verse 2. In 2 Samuel 7, he promises to make David's name great. Great. Elsewhere in the Bible, God alone, it is God alone who makes a name for himself. So to search for significance for ourselves, apart from God and in defiance of him, is supremely arrogant of us as a race when you stop to think about it. Imagine as a teenager, you're given the chance to work in a very successful company. You're a complete novice and you know next to nothing about how to run this business. Some very kind people in this company take you under their wings and they teach you everything. But after two or three years, they discover you to be usurping and undermining their plans for the future of their business. ...whilst trying to make a name for yourself. When in fact, they taught you absolutely everything you know. A fact which you seem both unable and unwilling to acknowledge. They would be understandably, justifiably outraged, don't you think? Third, ironically, they are using their God-given ingenuity... ...in order to carry out their plans... Verse 3, they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. See, a lack of stone material in the floodplains of the Middle East meant necessity became the mother of invention. They put uh, the abundance of clay in the area to good use, using it to manufacture their own oven-baked bricks. And they used the bitumen, or tar, instead of mortar. Even today, the Gulf region is still rich in oil deposits. A Crude oil often lies close to the Earth's surface in asphalt pits. So they used these tar deposits to cement their bricks together. It was ingenious. Again, we need to be clear. It is not this sort of human ingenuity or progress per se, per se that's the problem. Human achievement is not the concern here. Don't mishear or misunderstand what Genesis chapter 11 is saying. For example, please don't hear me saying all corporate, scientific, architectural, community, urban achievements or cultural products are somehow always bad and always evil. That's not the problem here. The problem in Genesis 11 is one of arrogance and overreaching ambition. It is humanity saying, we can do this, God, but without your help. Move over, God. There is no room for you in your world. When in fact, it is not their world, but God's. Can you see how supremely arrogant this is? Uh, politicians sometimes accuse, are sometimes accused of over-promising, especially during, uh, when an election is approaching. And this over-promising is often governed by arrogant overreaching. Uh, one former political spin doctor famously commented about his political party, we don't do God which is ironic given Romans 13, which says there is no authority except that which God has established. One author uh, puts it this way. What we have here is an account in which all the God-given abilities of human beings are deliberately focused on creating a society where God is redundant. The human inhabitants of this city view the creator as irrelevant. I was fascinated uh, to read recently this definition of the word hubris. I I like that word, although it speaks of something that's not so good to like. I read this. Hubris indicates a loss of contact with reality and an overestimation of one's own competence, accomplishments, or capabilities. That sums up our world rather well, don't you think? The great empires and kingdoms of this world, the United Nations, Great Britain, Facebook, Google, Amazon, etc., they all seek significance and security apart from and independence of, and sadly, often in defiance of, God. If we work together, we can become self-sufficient. There is no problem that we cannot solve if we put our great minds together. This is the world we live in. And this is the problem of collective human pride. After all, we've put a man on the moon. Finally, notice the contradiction of their situation. On the one hand, we have these overreaching and overconfident ambitions that says, come, let's make a name for ourselves. Yet on the other hand, we have the anxious insecurity of wanting to stick together just in case. Lest our plan somehow get thwarted. Full of pride, yet also full of insecurities. So they formed this ancient peacekeeping movement, a kind of proto-UN in order to encourage cooperation and good relations. But of course, they fail to see or understand, that ultimately, there can be no peace, no harmony, or truly constructive human effort east of Eden, that is, one that is not a God-centered approach. So the question becomes this, what will the real God of heaven do with these pretend gods that walk around on his planet? Answer, well, that brings me secondly to the second point, God will always judge our collective human pride. God will always judge our collective human pride. And I'm getting this from verses 5 to 9. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their languages so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. Verse 9, that is why it was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the languages of the whole world. For there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. The Tower of Babel, I suppose not unlike the Twin Towers in New York City once were, the Tower of Babel is a symbol of human autonomy and pride. I suppose that's why the terrorists attacked the Twin Towers, because of all that it symbolized. So whilst historians will come up with many and varied explanations for the rise and fall of empires, kingdoms, and other human schemes and endeavours, the primary reason, according to Genesis 11, is that God will always judge our collective human pride. That's the main reason our plans don't succeed. The God of the Bible is in the business of humbling the proud while showing favor to the humble. See, verse 5 is at the heart of our passage and in many ways is a turning point structurally in the story. The Lord comes down, we are told, to see this great city and tower. And this is meant to be amusing, folks. We're meant to laugh at this. See, as impressive as this city and tower seems from our limited earthbound perspective, in heaven, the Lord looks down and thinks to himself, what's all the fuss about? I can't see anything. This great city is so far beneath the God of heaven that he has to condescend to come down just to get a half-decent look at it. I recently had my eyes tested. Apparently I've got a stigmatism, and so my vision is a bit blurry around the edges. I'm getting old, folks. But understand, there is nothing remotely wrong with the eyesight of the Almighty God. It's just that this great city with its impressive tower is so small in his eyes that he has to come down to get a proper look at it. Feel small already? Well, you should do. Because what was so significant in the eyes of humanity, in God's eyes, is utterly trivial. There's a warning here for all of us, brothers and sisters. Not to seek great things for ourselves in this world. And it would be funny, but for the fact that it is not only sad, but also quite dangerous. Look at verse 6. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, to try and take my place in the heavens, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. You see that? Understand this. A genuinely united humanity would be a terrible and evil force for good in this world. A genuine united humanity would be a terrible and evil force of nature in this world. Moses has already warned us about how wicked the human race had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time from childhood. Genesis 6 verse 5, 8 verse 21. Please understand that if the Lord allowed the rebellion of Babel to go unchecked or unrestrained, there would be no limits to the reach of human evil. Mercifully, the Lord moves decisively to curb this great evil. It's vital that we don't dismiss this. You see, you and I constantly underestimate the reach and the power of human sin. Our sin. I certainly know I do in my life. See, the progress and the achievements of the last 100 years are utterly undeniable. But so is the fact that the 20th century has been the most murderous century in the history of our world. I have a dream. that one day down in Alabama... Little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and little white girls as brothers and sisters. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. No, we won't. Dr. Martin Luther King was an eloquent preacher and a great man with a deep spiritual faith, Christian faith. But his dream would have been a horror and an utter nightmare if it had been achieved here and now in this world, in this life, with people like you and I and the hearts that we have beating in our chests. The Lord our God knows this better than anyone. And so he simply cannot and will not allow us to indefinitely make this sort of name for ourselves. It's too dangerous, brothers and sisters. He therefore acts in judgment by turning the common speech or the one language of verse 1 into the many languages of verse 7. The result? Humanity can no longer cooperate on an international level to achieve an eternal and universal name for itself. Verses 7 and 8. That's why I take it working for the United Nations can be a frustration We can't even understand each other, let alone cooperate with one another. You see, verse 7, I think, mockingly mimics the human language of verses 3 and 4. We say, don't we, he or she speaks my language. By which we don't mean that we both speak English or Mandarin or Hindi. No, we mean that we understand each other. We can do business together. Our minds think alike. Languages and the different cultures, the politics, the ways of thinking and doing things they create continue to divide us to this very day, don't they? Imagine the chaos as people struggle to understand each other and to find common ways of thinking and doing things after Babel. Without a conductor, the harmony of the different orchestral instruments is replaced by a horrible, raucous noise, with one section trying to play their own music louder than every other section. Only it is not music being played, but different languages being spoken. The result? Chaos and disunity. In his great mercy, the Lord causes a bloodless coup that achieves the desired effect of verse 8. They stop building this tower. And the word Babylon is where we get the word Babel. The Babylonians took the word Babel to mean the gate of God. But ironically, this word also sounds like the Old Testament word for confused or mixed up. Like the unformed words of a babbling baby. What we have, therefore, in verse nine, is a play on words. That which was supposed to be a showpiece of human enterprise, ingenuity and technology, as humanity reached for the heavens in godlike fashion, instead, became a confused or mixed-up reminder of divine judgment on human pride. Humanity achieved a name for itself, yes, only not the name that was being strived after. Let's think about some implications of of this. Go to the British Museum and you will see the relics of the great empires and kingdoms that have been buried beneath the sands of time. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and more recently, the British Empire. This is no accident. And in their time, they all spoke of great achievements and great progress. But I destroyed them, said the God of heaven. Uh, Apparently, in Soviet times, the secular authorities built buildings to mimic cathedrals. In one such city, uh, a building dedicated to science was deliberately built in the shape of a cathedral with a cross on top to drive home the point. The point being that human scientific achievements move forward by a, a Soviet secular ideology had made belief in God irrelevant. Today, the people living in those regions speak of those Soviet times only in the past tense. Why? Well, because, of course, the Soviet Union no longer exists. The God of heaven wouldn't allow it to. But understand that the judgment of verses 5 to 9 does not mean that you and I have stopped building towers, does it? On the contrary, the world is full of little tower builders, namely me and you. We cannot help wanting to be at the center of our own own little universe, proudly constructing our own little empires. This is at the heart of sinful human nature. So isn't it kind and merciful of God to tell us through the Tower of Babel that he will never, we will never be allowed to leave any kind of lasting legacy outside of a relationship with him. So brothers and sisters, be careful that you are not simply pouring water into the sand as you live your life. Running from one vanity project to another in a desperate attempt to build something, to create a name for yourself, Or to leave a lasting legacy that speaks of your name. You and I need to hear loud and clear the warning of the Tower of Babel. And yet, that longing we all have is a dream that God has put into each of our hearts. So that all our failed attempts to build something that we can be truly proud of here and now will cause us to look to God himself and the great project to build something that truly will unite the human race. You see, a Christian is not simply an idealist who believes in the dream of a united world, that one day all the world will live as one, according to the song by John Lennon. See, so much energy is wasted by some people as they act on this dream which is a dead-end dream. Yet neither are Christians mere realists. We're not idealists, and we're not realists. You know, full of cynicism and hopelessness. The type of person who ends up masking their despair by living only for pleasure here and now, desperate for the pubs to reopen, or locked down to end so they can enjoy partying with their friends to numb the pain of their existence. No, a Christian is neither an idealist nor a realist, but both. We are realists who understand the power of sin. That sin means this dream can never be achieved by us here and now. Yet we still believe in the dream or the ideal because we know one day it will be an actual reality. But only God can and will achieve it, and through the Lord Jesus Christ. See, there will be a great, a new, and great city, but not one built by us that tries to reach the heavens. No, rather, it will be one built by God that comes down from the heavens. Revelation 21. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ purchased people from every nation, tribe, people, and language group. Revelation 5, verse 9. And on the day of Pentecost, the judgment of Babel was reversed as people, we are told, from every nation under heaven were told the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for them. That's a project we must give ourselves to, brothers and sisters. We must live and breathe and work to build what God is building and the name that he is creating for himself. And if you're not a Christian here today, you need to turn from your own private building tower and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he is building. You need to get out of Babel and into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. While you still can. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, please forgive us. When we live. With this pride and arrogance that. Speak of what we can do, what we have achieved. Forgive us when we want to usurp your authority, when we want to bring you down in order to elevate ourselves. We thank you that you mercifully point these things out to us, you humble us, and you remind us that you won't allow us to overreach ourselves. Uh, Please help us to recognise that we can't build anything truly lasting in this world if we leave you out of the picture. If we live lives in defiance of you. And we confess even as Christians that sometimes we can live to make a name for ourselves, to achieve great things that make us look good. We ask you to help us to repent of these attitudes and actions. And we ask you to help us To actively invest in what you are building. That we would invest in our Christian community and seek to build one another up and help one another to invest in your kingdom and what you're doing in this world and the name that you are making great for yourself through your church and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you that isn't a part of your church and seeking to be a part of what you're doing, that you'd help them to turn from their rebellion and to put their trust in the greatest builder of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask for your help in all these things for his name's sake. Amen.